Hello and welcome to Eldritch Girl Weird Gothic Stuff and Nonsense with me, C.M. Rosens. We're going to be continuing the serialisation of my first published novel, The Crows. Content warnings are to follow. The theme tune is by Gemma Cartmill. The illustrations in the books are by Tom Brown. You can buy the books either direct from me from my Kofi shop, uh, or you can buy them from any ebook online retailer and the paperback currently from Amazon only. If you do want to buy me a coffee instead of buying the book, you can do that via my Kofi, which is www.kofi.com, so that's ko-fi.com forward slash cmrosens. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Content warnings for chapter three. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where to start with this. Bad taxidermy. Um, uh, yeah, that's about it, really, I think. Um, but bad taxidermy in the context of a little bit of gore. Um, yeah, it's not too bad, this one. Oh, and strong language, obviously. Obviously. Um, all a bit gothic. I hope that's all right. Anyway, we'll see. Chapter three, meet the locals, in which Carrie joins the History Society. 18th of April. It had been a bloody awful day. His far sight was on the wane, as it usually was this time of year, and Gran had withheld access to the family shrine for the boost he needed. No, Ricky, my lad, no going down the cellar for you, not until you promise. Ain't promising you nothing, nothing, bloody old bitch, I'll do it another way. The cottage door slammed, shutting out the world. He didn't bother to take his hood down indoors. It was as cold inside as it was outside, not that the temperature bothered him. His fever flushes came and went in waves. He was in the grip of one now, skin twisting under his clothes, iron-hard bulges pushing against his stretch marks like writhing hernias. When he changed for good, he would be a thing of beautiful monstrosity. He would bathe naked in the wintry sunlight of the weald, drink in the whiplash-sweet salt of the sea, and live a blissfully solitary existence. His thoughts went to the house and its prize, his prize, but the comforting thoughts of future freedom were shattered by his present predicament. Richard, what did your gran say? His mother's sibilant whisper slithered down the stairs, reminding him he was never alone, spoiling everything. Nothing, he called back, heading for the trapdoor to the cellar. She's got her society meeting tonight. His mother took this in bad part. What the pest is the matter with you? Uncle David wants to see the omens for his business venture. Have you forgot? He'll pay us well, didn't she help you? I said leave it. He unlatched the trapdoor to the old coal cellar, taking care not to make too much noise. His mother wouldn't be coming downstairs. She was too weak. He had seen to that. Rank wafts rose up as Ricky slipped inside, descending into the damp, fetid gloom. He inhaled greedily, knowing he was too old for this now, but nostalgic visits to his childhood friend relaxed him. Burn it, his father said. What if it's found? Who knows what it eats? A glint of grey light wormed down through the floorboards and played over his needle collection. Stainless steel, half-curved, double-curved, straight glovers and families of circular cutting edge. He took his time to select the best for the task, threading it with care and snapping the length off with his teeth. How's the patient? 
He turned to the figure strapped to the wooden wheel, its hooded head lolling forwards. Easy, Gerald. We'll patch you up. Don't you worry. There was no sound. Gerald flopped, limp, against the restraints binding him upright. Ricky experienced the usual twinge. He promised himself he would get rid of Gerald. It couldn't last much longer. Eighteen was antique in stuffed toy years. The rip in Gerald's side was quite bad this time, curled brown leaves sticking to the stitches. Ricky fingered these thoughtfully. Gerald never left the cellar. Where did the leaves come from? He stuck his finger deep into the wound, poking a wriggling mess of maggots and putrefaction. He withdrew it and inhaled the stink that stuck jam slick to his skin. Gran wants me to be her little spy, Ricky complained, picking out the leaves and starting to sew, stinking gut ooze coating his fingertip up to the first knuckle. I know her too well. She'd yank the strings of others' weirds about like Punch and Bloody Judy, even mine, Gerald, even bleeding mine. It's my skill, is for me to know. I'm the far-sighted. I'm the soothsayer. I'm this family's one and only. They're all mole-blind like the regulars of the world were not for me. The needle glimmered, stabbing in and out, drawing angry thread behind it like a dark comet tail. The donkey hide was practically leather and worn smooth and bald in places, but Gerald had had this skin for a long time now and he liked it. Ricky sniffed, vision blurring. Fine then. I'll let it fade and stay blind myself. Let it come back on its own, natural like. It'll hurt them more than it hurts me. Liar, Gerald's caped skull accused. Without your farsight, what are you? None but a maggot in my belly, Richard Edwin Porter. Don't be like that. I'll get you more in Ud's promise. He gave the hide a little pat. The deer skull nodded with a tremor, bobbing in mute agreement. He dashed the back of his hand over his tear-stained cheeks. I'm a tool to them, he sniffed. Ain't I? Just a tool. Gerald commiserated. What? You're not a tool, Ricky objected, gravel gruff. Steel gleamed. The needle pressed a thin indent into his acid white fingers. Now nah, that ain't true. I'll sew you up and I'll unstrap, you see. Will you move for me if I do? Gerald only shivered with the movement of the needle, antlers dipping. Gerald never moved when Ricky was watching. Never had. Nah, I know you're a toy, he muttered. If you're a toy, I should get rid of you, shouldn't I? Childish, stupid. He stabbed into the hide again, finishing off the repair with a vicious sniff. Well, fuck me, hey? Fuck me. It had been a while since he had allowed himself a good self-pitying wallow. He put the needle away, pouting, round-shouldered. I don't know why I keep you around. He tilted the wheel on its axis, lying the six-foot figure flat on its back, antlered skull staring up at the floorboards above with cornflower blue eyeballs. They needed replacing, too. Ricky loosened the straps. Long, mismatched canine limbs sagged, protruding awkwardly from the donkey hide. Look at you, bag of bits and bones. He sniffed again, swallowing a lump of mucus. Heh, <laughs> look at me, fucking crying. Hell's bells and buckets of blood. Folding his arms, he regarded his amateur taxidermy creation. Gerald had seen much better days, once a magisterial sentinel in Ricky's father's old cape, towering over the much younger Richard with a benevolent air, his only friend. Now he was a relic, a weakness, a bloated body full of straw and maggots. She'll let me in soon, her next door. 
Ricky said, thinking of the straw-coloured blonde with her long stride and sad eyes. Then I'll show them what I can do. I don't need Gran. I'm not the family toolbox. I'm my own me. Gerald didn't blink. He stared at the dust and grime above, lifeless, chinks in the boards lancing him with stab wounds of light. Pagamon C's History Society met in the old scouting hall a good walk out of town, sat on the end of a road that terminated at a fenced car park and scattered picnic tables overlooking the sea. It was a large, single-storey hall of dark green concrete blocks with a rusty tin roof bearing the old remnants of the Boy Scout logo above the door. Pushing open the heavy fire door, Carrie entered a musty land of electric heaters and utilitarian furniture, the space lined on each side with stacked tables and hard black plastic chairs that left scuff marks along the linoleum floor. The small gathering of people in the central ring of chairs turned as she approached, and Carrie found herself taking a step back. Which one was Mr Bishop? Perhaps the older gentleman with a loud check jacket and awful toupee. He stood up, approaching with an extended hand. Caroline Rickard, I presume. Thank you for your email, my dear. Welcome. Carrie's heart leapt into her throat and hammered for release. She shook his hand as firmly as she dared, while what felt like thousands of eyes fixed her with curious stares. Welcome to our happy little band. Their self-elected spokesman released her from his enthusiastic grip, florid and jovial. I'm the vice chair, Mr Bishop's second in command, so to speak, widely knowledgeable on several topics, but classical history is my specialist subject, as it were. Colonel Mark Curtis, at your service. He stood to attention, a gentleman from another age. Carrie forced her lips into a twitchy smile. Nice to meet you, Colonel. The Colonel's lively chocolate eyes twinkled over the bridge of his Roman nose. Not often we get new blood in our humble circle, he said, offering her an empty chair. Do take a seat. Carrie, rubbing nervous hands along the seams of her jeans, made her way into the circle and sat down. The woman across from Carrie, a severe-looking retiree with an uneven weathered tan of a persistent gardener, gave her a faint smile. Her red blouse and high-waisted black-and-white striped skirt gave her a striking aspect. Lovely to meet you at last, Caroline, the woman said pleasantly enough. We've all heard so much about the renovations. It's all very exciting. Yes, indeed, but now is the time for introductions, Beverly, the colonel admonished. Let's do this in some semblance of order, what? Miss Rickard, this is Miss Sheila Azaman, our secretary. Carrie nodded in greeting at the next around the circle. There were already too many names to remember. New people on her shift, Mercy's partner from the other night, and now what felt like a whole room full. She tried to focus. A stout lady in a smart, cool grey trouser suit that contrasted against her warm brown skin, perhaps in her late 60s or early 70s at Carrie's best guess, inclined her head. You'll need to fill this out. She passed a form across to Carrie. Oh, Carrie hadn't intended to join. I, I was only visiting. I don't think I can afford a membership fee at the moment. There's no fee. Sheila Asman smiled, showing two elongated canines. Carrie took the form. Pen, please? It came out as a squeak. Mrs. Asman produced one, seemingly from thin air. Carrie signed herself up, handing back the pen and paper when she was done, and the introductions continued. Who had been around 60 years ago? She eliminated the younger members like Dev Sayal, a history teacher and another fellow Londoner, and a few others. And that's all of our little group this evening, the colonel said. 
we're missing, let me see, two or three. And dear Mrs. Varney, oh, here she is. An elderly lady entered the hut with a friendly wave, moving with sinuous grace. She had the physique of a retired ballet dancer or gymnast, her hair swept into a sleek bun at the back of her head. She looked old enough to remember the murder firsthand, even if she had been a girl when it happened. Her nose wrinkled and she shot Mrs. Azaman a sharp look. Mrs. Azaman eyeballed her, unflinching. Mrs. Varney growled, actually growled, in the back of her throat. Now, now, ladies, Colonel Curtis said, I thought we'd agreed to put the tea rotor business behind us. Janet, this is a new member, Caroline. Carrie gave a shaky smile, which was met with a piercing appraisal. New blood, Janet Varney asked, gliding with long strides across the room. Colonel, you spoil us. She's here of her own volition, the Colonel explained with a bristling moustache. Bought the crows, you see. Selling it on, surely, Mrs Varney eyed her with predatory suspicion. Carrie shook her head, heart hammering. No, I live there now. Janet Varney stalked through the circle to sit by the lady introduced as Beverly. Fancy that. Carrie fiddled with her chain. I've got a lot of questions, actually. So here we all are this week, the Colonel cut across her, except, of course, our fearless leader, who is, as usual, ruddy late. Coming from Barker Crescent, I'll be bound, Beverly said with a suggestive cackle, patting the back of her untidy pile of sheep cream curls, chatting to the lovely Mrs Wade about the old theatre. She pronounced lovely the way Carrie's grandmother had always pronounced Jezebel. Carrie glanced around the circle again. It was an interesting group, she thought. This was as good a time as any to make a start in a new place. No one caught her eye except Beverly, who gave her a thin smile. The door opened again. Sorry I'm late, everyone, Guy Bishop said, striding into the midst of the society. Carrie flinched, digging her nails into the sides of her chair. It was like a hipster version of Phil had entered the room. Guy Bishop was in his mid-thirties, a close-cut beard framing his symmetrical features and bringing out the warm tones in his hazel eyes. No, Carrie told herself, no, he's not like Phil, calm down. Phil wouldn't grow a beard. He was looking right at her. Carrie's cheeks blazed. Hi, he said. Carrie straightened up and gave him her best casual smile. Hi. Guy, this is Caroline the colonel said, gesturing towards her. She's come for a little look, haven't you, my dear? Bought the crows. Ah! Guy even looked attractive when surprised. He stared at her. You're not quite what I imagined when I heard someone had bought it and was actually living there, I have to admit. He exchanged looks with Mrs Azaman, who shuffled the forms in her lap and looked away. Guy recovered. We'll definitely have a chat about it later, if you'd like. Carrie beamed. Sure, that's fine by me. Guy beamed back. Even his teeth were perfect. Nothing not to like. It had been ages since she had allowed herself to find someone attractive. Ian had been okay, not her usual type, but a good reintroduction to the dating world, or been relaxed enough to let her guard down. She filed the red flags away for later. Once the meeting was underway, she got to ask her questions about the crows, but to her surprise, no one seemed prepared to give her many answers. Guy suggested she buy his father's book on the subject. Janet Varney was keen to change the subject back to the campaign to save an Art Deco theatre, and Colonel Curtis, for all his welcoming bluster, shut her down when he got the chance. I just wondered about the um, 
The girl they found, she said finally, after being brushed over again by the colonel. Beverly's focus became razor sharp. Carrie squirmed. Um, in my house, you know, in, in the fifties? We don't talk about that, dear, Beverly murmured, loud enough to carry across the circle. She spoke with a slight affectation, as if deliberately masking the more natural local accent underneath. Miss Rickard, some of us do not consider the fifties history as such, given we live through them, Colonel Curtis said, raising his voice and taking odd punctuating breaths as his face darkened into an unhealthy beetroot stain. The switch from Ms to Miss didn't escape Carrie's notice. Her cheeks burned. The colonel ploughed on, face darkening with effort. Apart from that, I, for one, am of the opinion that ghoulish considerations of other people's misfortunes are, at best, best left to the gutter press. His chest heaved. Carrie quivered, falling back into the well-worn groove of appeasement. Phil had trained her well. I'm sorry, of course you're right. I, it's just awful. I didn't want to upset anyone. I'm so sorry I asked. It's all right, Uncle Mark, Guy muttered, but couldn't quite meet Carrie's eye. Carrie spent the rest of the meeting in silence, cheeks burning with humiliation. By nine o'clock, the meeting was over, and Carrie had learned a lot about Pagamonsi's theatre scene in the 1920s, but very little of actual interest to her. Guy and the Colonel stayed behind to stack the chairs. As the others filed out, Carrie busied herself with helping clear the halls to show willing and make up for her earlier faux pas. Beverly approached her, not to help, but to point out she was stacking the chairs too high. Carrie flushed, but Beverly wasn't done. She hovered, observing. You're settling in all right, are you, dear? The older woman asked in tones of maternal concern. It must be lonely for you, all alone in that big place. I'm not lonely, Carrie insisted, lying. It's great here. Beverly studied her with a faint, disbelieving smile. Would you like to come for tea with me one day this week? Carrie wasn't sure she did, but it was the first invitation of this kind she'd had, so she smiled anyway. I'd love to, thanks. Um, it's... Beverly, wasn't it? Is there anything I can do? Do you want me to bring anything? Beverly beamed, the apples of her cheeks growing pink with pleasure. Oh, bless you, no. I have my grandson for that. Ricky is ever such a good boy. Always brings me my shopping on a Friday. Her watery eyes narrowed. He's our Letitia's boy. Neighbours of yours, Letitia and George are. Neighbours? Carrie didn't have any neighbours. She wondered how far away the nearest farmhouse was. At Bramble Cottage, dear. Something clicked. Really? She couldn't believe anyone lived there. The cottage was a wreck. Haven't you met our Ricky? Always in the woods he is, been telling me all about it up there, all the work. The grey in the trees, Carrie thought. Not Phil, a creepy neighbour. Great. Lovely boy. Always calls by once a week at least, drops my shopping off and has a bit of tea. Can't do enough for me. I wish the others were the same, but there we go. That's families for you, isn't it? She sniffed, accent broadening as her tone darkened. You'd think our Ruby would call her old mother once in a while, but oh no, not her. Gone to be with a be rather better most sort of folks, hasn't she? Marrying that young blood fellow and taking herself off to Lancaster. I never could have bear that chap. Got a jacuzzi in the garden now she has. In Lancaster. Imagine that. I says to a ruby, I says, it's a poor lookout for you if you want to swap the love and support of your own flesh and blood for a few bubbles up your... Sorry to interrupt, Bez, but we have to head off, Guy cut in. 
Carrie winced apologetically, empathising with the errant Mrs Ruby Youngblood. Sorry, so do I. I'd love to come for tea, though. Oh, well, when you're not busy. Beverly squeezed Carrie's upper arm with a disconcertingly strong grip. Not a lot of meat on you, is there, dear? You're like our Katie. She's a scrawny little thing. Well, we'll fix that. Come over tomorrow at seven. I'm at the end of Seaview Road. Wonderwick, that's me. Carrie smiled. She finished work at six. I'll see you tomorrow. Guy gave her a shy glance. Can I give you a lift? he asked. No, thanks. I'm honestly fine, Carrie heard herself say. Are you sure? Guy's perfectly smooth brow creased in the middle. I'm dropping Sheila home too. It's no bother. Carrie hesitated, as if accepting would consign Guy to oblivion. If you're sure... She tested his resolve. I mean, I do live in the Bermuda Triangle of Sussex. Guy laughed. Don't listen to all that, it's fine. If Carrie's inner voice had boots, it would have kicked her in the brain. Shut up and get in the car. After you, Guy said. He waved goodnight to the colonel, who cheerily waved back. Night, Uncle Mark. Carrie, melting, scuttled through the door, the top of the range sports car outside gleaming under the streetlight. Another red flag flipped up in her head. Booksellers didn't make that much money, surely. But perhaps business was booming, or Guy had an inheritance, or family money, or something like that. It wasn't any of her business. Then again, perhaps he was a lucky gambler, unlike Phil, or a drug baron. She knew absolutely nothing about him. She tried not to show her discomfort as her imagination ran amuck. He was probably an axe murderer. I'll get in the back, Mrs Asman said, clutching her bag of folders and pens. What did Mrs Wend want? Carrie helped Mrs Asman unload her things onto the back seat. The name rang a faint bell. Beverly? Oh, just being friendly, I think. Everyone's been really nice. No, they haven't. Mrs Asman looked her dead in the eye with disconcerting shrewdness. I know the people in this town. You're lonely. Carrie froze, hand tightening on the edge of the car door. I'm fine. No, you're not. I can tell. Mrs Asman gave her a small twitch of a smile. I suppose you've heard your house is cursed. It isn't, Carrie retorted, cheeks burning. Sheila Asman chuckled. Oh, I know, but people do believe a lot of rubbish. You'll make friends. Just be careful who with. With that, she climbed into the back seat, letting Carrie close the door for her. Nice car, she said, sliding into the front passenger seat, letting the luxury envelop her. Guy patted the steering wheel. She's my baby. I saw her and, yeah, well, I'm sure you can relate, right? Sheila Asman leaned between them, offering a packet of mints. I did warn him about buying on credit, she said to Carrie, but he wouldn't listen to me. Guy shot her a sheepish grin and pulled off. They glided into town, headlights lighting up the road ahead. Carrie cracked the window and took a deep breath of salty air. Thanks for letting me join, she said. It was really interesting. Is that all the members you have? Sheila sighed. We used to have a lot more, but these past few years have been very disappointing. A lot of the older members have passed on, you know. Younger ones come and go. My granddaughter used to come with me, but then she took up the guitar, started playing in a band at school. You settling in all right? Guy asked Carrie, finally, forcing a cheerful tone. It's a nice place once you get to know it. Carrie smiled. Yeah, Beverly invited me over too, so that's nice. Guy turned into a street that bowed like a crescent, bordered on either side by similar crescent-shaped streets. Great. 
Good to hear. Mrs. Wend is a generous lady. Here we are, Sheila. This time it came back to her in a rush, Mercy warning her against the Wend family over dinner at the Ram. Her eyes widened in the rearview mirror, catching Sheila's amber gleam in the dark. They pulled into the driveway of a block of flats, built in a style typical of modern private sheltered accommodation, a friendly light on in the foyer. As Guy got out to open the door for her, Sheila leaned in close to Carrie's ear, her breath hot on the back of Carrie's neck. She tapped Carrie twice on the shoulder. If you go to Beverly's, Mrs Azaman whispered, don't drink the tea. Jumping with surprise, Carrie twisted around to stare at her. Guy opened the door. Have a good evening, Mrs Asman said at her normal volume, getting out and slamming the door. Carrie's skin crawled where Sheila had tapped her. It felt like a signal of some kind, something she couldn't interpret, like another warning. Guy didn't seem to have heard what she'd said. He saw Sheila into the foyer and returned to the car with swift, long strides. As he got back in, Carrie licked her lips, shooting him a quick glance. Thanks for the lift. He coughed, suddenly coy. I, uh, I don't suppose I'd be able to see what you've done with the place, would I? Not now, he added hastily, but sometime when it's convenient. I used to go there when I was a kid. Don't tell me you nicked stuff too, Carrie said, laughing. Guy turned red. Oh, God, who have you been talking to? Did you? He made a strangled, guilty sound. His hands briefly lifted off the steering wheel. Sorry, he gave an embarrassed chuckle. Never thought I'd meet someone who'd buy it, he admitted. I never thought anyone would buy it, to tell you the truth. I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't want to. Carrie settled, watching the town speeding past them. I think it's the most amazing place. Guy's smile widened. I can't wait to see it. He turned off at the roundabout. The Fairwood estate wasn't too far away from the town, but it was far enough off the beaten track for Carrie to be a little self-conscious about getting Guy to drive so far out of his way. Guy, Carrie said, what do you know about the murder? Murder as in a murder of crows? Carrie raised an eyebrow. No, people couldn't leave that pun alone, could they? I meant as in the Ross murder. Guy shook his head. Ah, well, it's all in my dad's book. It's a bit out of date now. He published it in 1987. I don't know if I could afford a copy right now, Carrie confessed. He drove through the open wrought iron gates and crunched up the the gravel avenue. As the car pulled up outside, the crows looked down upon them benevolently through newly glazed panes. While she fumbled in her bag for her keys, Guy got out and leaned on the car, staring up at the miracle the contractors had performed. Holy cow! Fairwood had been restored to its former glory, at least from the outside. The house surveyed its domain across the gardens, whole and complete. Three storeys high in the central part, with three gables overlooking the drive, the house wore a proud, concentrated expression. Guy shook his head. I'll... I can drop the book up to you after work, is that all right? I'd I'd love to have a proper look. No! The disapproving thought jarred with her mood as if it wasn't really her own. She eyed him warily. Um, I work shifts though, so I can't guarantee when I'll be in. No bother, I'll pop it in your box. He pointed at the vintage cast iron post box Carrie had splashed out for, hanging on the wall beside the door. Carrie waved, letting herself in as he reversed out. 
Despite her reservations, she couldn't help but grin. Don't overthink it. Let it be. The house absorbed her thrill of delight, wood settling in contented creaks around her as she caressed the banisters and made her way gleefully upstairs. Warmth flowed in her wake, coursing through the varnished wood grain from her fingertips. It was cold for an April night, but Carrie didn't mind. Life was finally looking up. Thanks for listening to this chapter of The Crows. Um, the tune was by Gemma Cartmel. Illustrations in the ebook and paperback are by Tom Brown. If you want to read ahead, um, do buy the book. <laughs> you can buy it from my Kofi shop or my website directly, or you can buy it from Amazon. Um, the paperback you can get from Amazon. There are two extra illustrations in the paperback compared with the ebook. And you can also buy the ebook from all available online platforms. Um, if you've got any questions, feel free to contact me on social media. Um, I'm at Twitter at CM Rosens. Um, so, yeah, get in touch. <laughs> See you next week.